Hello, listeners. Before we begin, a few brief content warnings. This episode contains profanity, discussion of violence and death, mentions of sex and sexuality, and mentions of sexual assault. Please take care of yourselves while listening. And now, here we go. and welcome to Classically Trained, a podcast where we discuss modern media that depicts the ancient Mediterranean world, its peoples, and its stories. I am Julia, your resident Greek literature person and, like, sort of linguist-ish. And I'm Allison, your present Roman archaeologist and late antique scholar. And today we are talking about Troy 2004, the film... <laughs> I like how we have to, like, specify, like, Troy 2004, because I think if you just say Troy, it would be kind of confusing, but the movie is literally just called Troy, so... Yeah, I think there are multiple things called Troy, and obviously, so this film, I think, is, like, the more notorious thing, and now we're talking about it. Yes. Yes, we are. <laughs> Maybe we should start with whether we liked it. Or should we start with the summary? I I, I want to get in to this one. Yeah, I mean, we can start with whether we liked it. Okay. No. <laughs> I'm gonna go with a. Uh, that's my that's my noise is. Uh. I described in a text, to Allison. So I'd never seen this movie before until I watched it two days ago for or yesterday mm-hmm. as for this podcast. Yeah. And I described it in a text to Allison as an hour of, like, being kind of dismayed, but, like, it was fine. And then for an hour, it was really boring. And then for an hour, it was batshit. The the whole third act <laughs> of this film is insane. And I was not prepared for anything that happened. Oh, see... <laughs> Okay, so I had to teach this film in a tutorial last year, which I'm still a little bit annoyed about because that meant I had to watch this movie. And this movie is two hours and 30 minutes long or something. Something like that. At least the version on Netflix. Allegedly, there's another version, which is more R-rated and even longer. Oh, God. Uh, Why? And yes, I I don't like this movie very much, but I knew what I was getting into. So I was like, and you know, after having seen Troy Fall of a City, I didn't hate this nearly as much as Troy Fall of a City because simply by the fact that it is a movie, it can only go so slowly. Yeah, <laughs> the pace is quite fast. Mm-hmm. And I definitely hated this less than Troy Fall of a City. I still didn't like it, but you like... Know. As we go along in, and we get into our discussion, I think that although overall this was not an enjoyable watching experience at all, there are things that I can appreciate about this film. Like, I didn't like watching it, mm-hmm. but there are things about it that I appreciate as a scholar of the Iliad. Yeah. Do you want to get into your summary before we get any further? <laughs> yeah, because this is like a batshit adaptation, <laughs> so... I'm gonna I'm gonna summarize as best I can, but we'll probably get we'll get into the details. Yeah. So, Troy is a 2004 film directed by Wolfgang Peterson and written, and this is important, by <laughs> da- <laughs> by David Benioff, starring Brad Pitt, Eric Bana, and Orlando Bloom. 
The movie loosely retells the events of the Trojan War, beginning with the kidnapping, I put kidnapping in air quotes, of Helen of Sparta by Paris of Troy. After Helen willingly leaves her husband with Paris to go back to Troy, Menelaus and Agamemnon muster the Greek kingdoms to invade Troy and retrieve Helen. In this version of the story, the events of the war play out over basically like two weeks, beginning with the desecration of a temple of Apollo by Achilles, whereby he acquires the Trojan princess Briseis as a captive. That same day, Agamemnon seizes Briseis as his own prize, leading to Achilles withdrawing from the fighting. The... Next day, as far as I can tell, Menelaus and Paris decide to have a duel for Helen's hand, one-on-one combat, whoever wins gets the girl. Paris is defeated, but Hector refuses to allow Menelaus to execute his brother and instead stabs Menelaus and the armies meet in battle. However, due to the absence of Achilles and the Myrmidons, the Greeks lose significantly, including uh, the death of Ajax. That evening, I think, Achilles reclaims Briseis from the soldiers to whom Agamemnon had, like, given her before she can be either significantly harmed or before Agamemnon can make the decision to return her. Shortly after that, possibly even that same night, the timeline's a little unclear, the Trojans decide to take advantage of damaged Greek morale to mount an attack on the Greek camp and attempt to burn their ships. Patroclus, Achilles' cousin, Uh, Sorry, even saying that. Okay, okay, okay. No, no, back to the recap. Achilles' cousin dons Achilles' armor and leads the Myrmidons to repel the Trojans, but is killed by Hector, leading to Hector withdrawing with their forces and Achilles, uh, like, swearing vengeance. Achilles rides to Troy, duels Hector one-on-one, and kills him. Shortly thereafter, Priam comes to the Greek camp to beg for the return of Hector's body, which Achilles agrees to surrender, and Achilles also agrees to grant a 12-day ceasefire. At the end of the 12 days, the Trojans find that the Greeks have apparently retreated from the beach, leaving only a giant wooden horse. Against Paris's advice, Priam has the horse brought into the city, and that night, the Greek soldiers hiding within spill out of the horse, open the gates for the remainder of the Greek forces who had actually been hiding nearby, and they sack the city. Several members of the Trojan royal family, including Andromache, Paris, and Briseis, escape. Agamemnon and Achilles are both killed, and the city is burned to the ground. End film, thank god. I definitely missed stuff, and the timeline in this film is both super truncated and also really unclear. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. I kind of, it kind of doesn't matter what the timeline is in this movie, though. Like, structurally, it's not... No, but it is interesting. So, I have some stuff to say about that. I will say it in one second, because I think that's actually a pretty good place to start, but... I just want to clarify, for anybody who hasn't listened to our Troy Fall of a City episodes and isn't familiar with the Iliad, some of the major players on the Greek side are Menelaus and Agamemnon, who are brothers, respectively the kings of Sparta and Mycenae, and uh, Agamemnon is kind of the king of kings on the Greek side. On the Trojan side, we have Priam, who is the king of Troy, his sons, Hector, who is like the older son, and Achilles is martial equal, Paris, who is the one who falls in love with Helen and kidnaps her. And then we also get a little bit of stuff with Andromache, Hector's wife. Mm-hmm. But we don't really get any other major Trojan characters. There is, um... 
Oh, and Odysseus is around. Y- yeah, yeah. I forgot about him. Yeah, he's on the Greek side. Yes. Yeah. But those are the, like, major players, mm-hmm. just for anybody who, like, doesn't know who those people are. And also Briseis, but she occupies a really different place in this film than she does in the Iliad, so we'll talk about her. Yes, she does. <laughs> Let's start with talking about the kind of major canon divergences. So the biggest one is the timeline. You're right that like as far as the Mm -hmm. narrative of the film, it doesn't really matter that the timeline is so truncated that they like arrive on the beach. Achilles sacks the temple that morning. He takes Briseis as a captive that night. Mm -hmm. Agamemnon takes her that later that same night in the morning the Greeks attack Troy like it's it all happens really really fast as far as the narrative of the film that makes sense in a way like the pace is just fast yeah Mm -hmm. and there's not there's no pointless time skipping but it really changes the tenor of the story yes it does in the Iliad for those who aren't aware and I apologize to anybody who listened to our fall of the city episodes because some of the stuff we're going to talk about is going to be some, like, recap as far as the Iliad information. But I think we should talk over some of the stuff again for anybody who hasn't listened to those episodes. Yeah, absolutely. So, in the Iliad, the quarrel between Agamemnon and Achilles takes place in the ninth year of a ten-year war. Like, they've been there for a long fucking time, sacking the outlying cities and just, like, generally kind of chewing through all the resources. And all of the Greek kings and all of the soldiers are really tired, and they've been there for a long time. But they have been sticking it out because they have commitments that keep them there. Yeah. And that's, like, a really different tone than we showed up and are going to bash down the door in, like, a week. Yeah, it it removes some of the weight of everything that's going on in the film. Like, it's not like, oh, we've put 10 years into it. So you kind of, you kind of don't get that, that energy to it. But I will, and I mean, I think this goes for a lot of the other sort of adaptational changes. I will give them they made specific changes that made sense in the context of the movie. They had a particular, like, narrative they were trying to tell and they made the necessary changes. Yeah. Well, and the thing is, a lot of the changes they made were simplifications of the story in order to streamline the narrative. So, yes. like, another major one is that in the Iliad, the quarrel between Agamemnon and Achilles happens because Agamemnon also has, like, a captive slave woman who is his kind of war prize, and he ends up having to give her back because her father is a priest of Apollo and is basically... has called a plague down on the Greeks and he has to give her back so that they will all stop dying of disease like mm-hmm. by the tens and because he's a bitter petty piece of shit Agamemnon demands Achilles's prize mm-hmm. in exchange for what he has had to give up and it's a major insult to Achilles's honor in a similar way that Agamemnon just taking Briseis unilaterally as he does in this film is, but there's just, like, this other wrinkle for, like, why he ends up doing that. This film really just characterizes Agamemnon as a petty bully with no real sophistication of character beyond 
greed for land and power. Yeah. Which honestly, for the type of movie this is, I'm totally fine with that. Yeah. It's like, is it super narratively satisfying? Like, not in the same way that, like, Agamemnon is dealt with in other media, but Agamemnon is a dick. Yeah. Um, It's just that in this, he's a dick with no other character traits. He's, like, a dick for no reason other than that he's just an irredeemable asshole. Like, in the Iliad, he is actually a very good warrior. He's a Mm -hmm. good leader of his people. He cares a lot about his brother. He cares about honor. He's willing to admit that he's wrong, like, eventually. And also, one of the things that has led him to be so committed to the war is that he has had to give up, like, a Mm -hmm. lot personally in order to get here. Specifically, he was forced to sacrifice his own daughter. Yeah. None of that happens in Troy. Yeah. And... That doesn't bother me a whole lot for whatever reason. I think this is because it's like this big Hollywood blockbuster, and I'm not really expecting that. There are certain things that I don't like that they did because I think they're kind of narratively a little bit messy, but that having just like a basic ass villain doesn't necessarily bother me in this like historical epic Hollywood blockbuster type thing. No, I think it was okay. I'm just saying it flattens the story a lot. Yes, it I'm does. not saying that I hate it. And in fact, this is I said earlier, mm-hmm. despite the fact that I didn't enjoy watching this movie at all, there are things that I appreciated about it as an adaptation. And this is one of those things. Like I think that it is possible to just decide that we're just gonna have Agamemnon be the villain of the story and it makes it really easy to streamline the whole Briseis thing without getting rid of it entirely and therefore like Mm -hmm. keep some aspect and like the the really gut like thing of the Iliad and the Iliadic conflict Mm -hmm. between Achilles and Agamemnon without spending a bunch of screen time on something that could just be simplified out. Yeah. What I will say, what I the choice that I didn't love so much um, going back to like Briseis and Achilles. Well, there's a lot of things I didn't like about that. Yeah. We can get into that later. But one thing that I didn't like is it feels like the war hasn't even happened when Achilles decides to peace out. Like, it's been, like, five minutes or whatever. It Like, it's, like, a day into the war. Yeah. Like, so, and then that really, the, you you lose the emotional weight yeah. of that whole conflict. And they do try to, like, set up that conflict in advance. And I do, uh, like see what they were trying to do there but it just felt it just feels kind of flat yeah so one of the things is that like and this is kind of a comment about achilles in this film they flatten his character out a lot too there's things that i'm okay with and things that i don't like and one of the things that i don't like is that his decision to withdraw from combat is entirely because he falls in love with briseis and is like i'm just gonna i'm just gonna like be whipped and take my new wife home and like be happy instead of the thing that happens in the iliad which is that he gets insulted and kind of realizes that he's fighting for nothing like when all you're fighting for is honor and it is demonstrated extremely explicitly that you can just have your honor stripped away from you for nothing like arbitrarily by somebody with more power than you suddenly what you're fighting for is nothing yeah and achilles has that epiphany and is like he vocalizes this in the iliad like men who stay home and just till their fields 
die just the same as men who go and fight on the battlefield and like don't really get any less in life and in fact may even get more yeah and we get this a lot from like later achilles like we get achilles's ghost in the odyssey who's like i would much rather have been a serf working somebody else's land than to have died young in combat this was all bullshit and i wish i hadn't done it yeah Mm mm-hmm So that's kind of, that flattening of character is a result of the simplification of the narrative that they did. And it's problematic in terms of character. Like, it means that we basically don't have any real three-dimensional characters in this film. Yes. I have a lot to say about Achilles and the way he's handled in this movie. I don't know if we want to get into that now or if we want to press pause on that for a minute. Let's um, because yeah, press there's pause definitely on that. that is something that is just not Achilles is not handled well from a narrative standpoint. But yeah, I don't I don't love it. And then the other thing that I really want to say about as far as like the divergence from canon that's kind of important and that is relevant to this whole thing that they did is that a lot of the Greek kings die. Yeah. And so to- in fact all of the Greek kings except for Odysseus yes. die. Yes. All of the Greek kings that we see and the, the Trojans escape. Yes. And you know, the thing that I love about this movie is that I do get to see Menelaus and Agamemnon die terribly because I hate them and they usually get to survive which I understand is like narratively complex and like important to the narrative of the Iliad that like survival is not about like moral goodness you know like none of this is associated with like actual moral worth Um, and also Agamemnon gets home and gets killed horribly yes but it is satisfying to see them get stabbed on screen. <laughs> yes. <laughs> no. Yeah. So this is the thing is the movie does a pretty, like, weirdly, the movie does a better job almost than, like, Troy Fall of a City, which is arguably more centered around the Trojans as characters mm-hmm. of, like, setting up the Trojans as kind of the heroes of the story. Oh, yeah. No, because it's one of these things where this is a really good thing to compare to Troy Fall of a City because largely this movie went with a very sort of simplistic approach but it works so much better because they have these like clear delineations aside from maybe Achilles. Achilles is kind of problematic with how they're dealing with him but aside from that they have really clear delineations of what each character is doing yeah in the film. Well and Odysseus but Odysseus is always an ambiguous figure. Yeah which is which is kind of fine. So yeah you have Paris who has like this very clear sort of arc like he's a dumbass kid who does something because he thinks he's in love with a woman and then he sort of he sort of like learns from that you know like he has a kind of a clear character arc and he sort of realizes he was kind of a dumbass he commits himself he like recommits himself to the city yeah yeah um and then you've got like hector has a clear character arc which i mean usually he does like he is the you know prince who does what he needs to do despite like the personal cost to himself <laughs> Priam is this, like, good king figure. And they're simplistic, but they each fill a narrative role. Yeah. And they each sort of have a clear arc. Um, And so you're not confused and befuddled, unlike Troy Fall of the City. Yeah. Um, Where where you don't have any real sympathy for any of the characters. The thing is, yeah, it is hard to make the Greeks sympathetic if you're going to crunch 
out all of the backstory of the Greeks. Yes. Which is what they did. Yeah. So they just decided not to try. Yeah. They were just like, okay, that's fine. Like, the Greeks are not going to be sympathetic. We will make the, we will make Agamemnon and Menelaus the villains. Mm-hmm. And they will die. Yeah. And they do. And it's fine. And, like, Achilles is kind of an ambiguous figure Mm -hmm. because he almost makes the decision that would be the, like, sympathetic one, which is for him to be like, actually, fuck this. Like, I'm being treated like shit. Mm -hmm. I'm going to take this girl that I have made the, like, decision not to rape because I am a good guy, TM, and I'm going to take her home and that'll be fine. And then something bad happens and he makes the other decision. And so there's kind of this karmic retribution of like, no, you chose to come knowing that you would die. And so you will die. Yeah. Because you are going to do the bad thing. And he does the bad thing and then he gets punished for it. Yeah. But even that in its own way is kind of satisfying. Like... It's like, okay, well, you know what, we, we all already knew that this was going to happen because he actually gets prophesied to at the beginning of the film, which I appreciated. Yes. Shout out to the brief glimpse of Thetis. Yeah. Like, showing up to be like, if you go to Troy, you will die. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wish, just to sidetrack a little bit into the gods in this film, yeah, I appreciated seeing Thetis, but I feel like like Troy runs into a similar sort of problem as Troy Fall of a City and that they don't really know what to do with the gods. I actually don't agree with that, that Uh this movie doesn't know what to do with the gods. I think it's that this movie doesn't believe in the gods. Like the people who who made this movie actually made the decision that the gods don't exist, Uh but that the characters believe that they do. Yes. I would say that's fair. So we don't, for example, get things like The Judgment of Paris, which is an unapologetic and undisguisable encounter between the mortal and the divine. Mm -hmm. But we do get things like the Trojans having all of this faith in Apollo and them being like, oh, the Greeks are going to, you know, be struck down by Apollo because they've desecrated the temple, Mm -hmm. but they don't. Yeah. And like Achilles' encounter with Thetis, there's kind of this gentle implication that she might be a goddess Mm -hmm. because, and like the little boy at the beginning of the film is like, they say you're a child of the gods or whatever. Mm -hmm. But We really don't get any suggestion, actually, and even Achilles doesn't say, even though he certainly has opportunities to do so, my mother is a goddess. Mm -hmm. I I am of the opinion that this film is actually pretty clear that the gods don't exist. It's just that the characters believe that they do, and so they say things about them, but there is no evidence that there is any godly power at work at any point in this film. So... I feel like that would be true if they didn't have the scene with Thetis. Because that, and you can really read that either way. Because the thing is, is I think the one thing that sort of points to her not being godly is that she's depicted as an older woman. Yeah. Like, but I, there is a part of that that sort of does a little bit imply that she is a goddess. The thing is, I think that there's a kind of maybe people believe that about her, but she's not. 
Like, I really don't think she's supposed to read. She's supposed to read as, like, maybe a goddess, but I really don't think she is. Yeah, well, that's the thing is, it's like, if she's supposed to read as maybe a goddess, and that's a bit of a problem for the, the idea that, like, the gods do not exist. I feel like if their goal was to have the audience understand that the gods do not exist that that scene with Thetis might be a little bit problematic. However, what I will say is I only am reading it as that she is possibly a goddess because I know that. Yeah. I don't think the average viewer would maybe get that. So I don't know if that's necessarily something I can say is a failing because I think the average viewer would not necessarily come away from this film thinking that the gods are at work. And yeah. honestly, I like that narrative choice. I think it is... Well, and every other thing about this is, like, the gods are not real. Like, yeah. they even make kind of a joke about Apollo's plague. Yeah. Like, the Trojans, when the Trojans come to the beach to find that the Greeks have retreated, it's like, oh, Apollo, like, brought a plague. They've left a couple of, like, poxed yeah. corpses. And yeah. it's like, oh, Apollo brought a plague on the Greeks and they ran away. And it's like, no, the Greeks have manipulated the Trojans' faith in Apollo, who is known to be a god who brings disease, in order to make the Trojans think that they've run away. Yeah. But actually, no, Apollo did fuck mm -hmm. all the Greeks are tricking them. And so in that way... Multiple times in this film, we get characters manipulating other characters' faith mm -hmm. in order to trick or deceive them. Yeah. Including, I think, Achilles about the gods, like, and about the belief that he is the child of a god. Yeah. It is to his benefit for people to believe that he is immortal or, yeah. you know, at least somewhat impervious to mortal harm. And so he lets that impression stand, even though I very much got the feeling that he, like, doesn't really believe his mother's a goddess. Yes. And the fact that he gets shot in the heel, despite the fact that this movie makes such a point of really kind of indicating the gods do not exist because then that doesn't make any sense yeah there's really no point As to the heel especially shot. especially because we see we also get these narrative beats that indicate how skilled of an archer paris is we see him like splitting arrows down the middle so he clearly shot him in the heel on purpose yeah. So and, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> and I'm going to compare to Fall of a City again. Unlike in Fall of a City where Achilles is about to, he's like advancing and about to murder Priam and Paris needs to hobble him so that he can't do that before Paris gets there. There's no actual reason for Paris to shoot him in the heel first. He could have just shot him in the back. Yeah. This is one of these things where it's like you're preserving an Easter egg, basically, yes. for no real reason in the story. That's almost kind of how I feel about the thing with Thetis. Like, when we yeah. meet Thetis, that she's standing in the water, like, gathering seashells. And I think this is one of the things that causes you to be like, well, maybe she is a goddess uh -huh. because there's this ocean association. Yes. But to me, it's like, no, this is just an Easter egg that they've left in for people who know. Yeah. It's not actually supposed to be an indication that she is a sea goddess like she is in the original mythology. It's just like a fun thing to notice if you yeah. already know yeah. that about her. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Similarly, the shot in the heel, it's significant if you know that that's Achilles' weakness, which yes. a lot of people do. 
but like it doesn't really mean anything and in fact sort of actively confuses the narrative because it doesn't make sense as an action for Paris to take in that moment especially given what we know about him as a character otherwise and what the movie is emphasizing so another thing about the gods that was like a kind of a minor irritation is that the fact that they insist on calling Apollo the sun god I mean, he is. Yes, but it sounds very... It's really exoticizing. Yes, that's a good word for it. This is the thing, is they make it fairly clear that, like, it's sort of like, oh, the Trojans, they worship Apollo, as if this is some, like, foreign god that they're super devoted to. That framing is really weird. And I mean... I think what it is, is that they needed to find a way to make the Trojans seem kind of other and paint them that way, because beyond that, this movie is just white people fighting other white people. It sure is. Let's talk about how white this movie is for a second. Oh god, it really was 2004, and they wanted to have a blockbuster filled with white people. Don't get me wrong, I love, like, Orlando Bloom and Sean Bean- as much as the next basic bitch who was born in 1996 and loved the Lord of the Rings growing up. But, like, this movie is so white. Yeah. I mean, I think I, I think we also said this about Troy Fall of the City, which is less white, but, you know, a lot of the people they cast, I think, were good choices. I, like, yeah, like, Sean Bean is a good... Uh, Odysseus, like he works really well in that character. The uh, mullet is bad, but he's he, a good actor. You know, yeah, the, it was not a great choice. Um, like the the actress who plays Briseis was excellent. She did a really yeah, great job. I think, um, her, I think her name is Rose Byrne. Yeah, Rose Byrne. Um, and then yeah, Peter O'Toole. Peter O'Toole, who plays Priam or Priam, mm-hmm. as they pronounce it in the film. Yeah. Also, they pronounce Menelaus' name Menelaus, yes. which. Isn't incorrect. No, it's not incorrect, it just but was, it drives me nuts for it, some reason. <laughs> but yeah, like, Peter O'Toole was really great in this yeah. film, and, like, he has an amazing, like, resonant voice, and also he has some of the only good lines of dialogue, and also is the only person in this film who can act. I disagree with that. I do um, not. C- c- you, well, A, Sean Bean and Rose Byrne can act. Sean Bean and Rose Byrne can act. Um, Both of them are doing the best they can with rubbish material. Yes. Yeah, and then we get to the quote-unquote star of this movie, Brad Pitt. Do we have to talk about Brad <laughs> yes, Pitt? Yes, we do. Because I do I do actually have some things. Okay, so everybody, Brad Pitt in this movie is awful. His line deliveries don't make any sense. He's trying to do an English accent, but failing like so dramatically like it's not even like occasionally it slips through it's he's doing some weird mashup accent because he just cannot manage to do an english accent at all his face just does things that are just like there's times where i think he's supposed to look sexy but he just sort of looks like he's uncomfortable every time we got a shot of him like looking majestically off screen i was like that's a man with no brain cells. <laughs> However, so I was actually, I don't know, I was looking at Brad Pitt's Wikipedia page for this for some reason. And yeah. I came across this quote of his where he was he was interviewed, I think, two years ago 
for whatever reason, for whatever movie was going on. And he actually expressed a, a, well, A, he expressed that he doesn't really like anything uh, from the first 15 years of his career. He did not think he was really acting very well, but also he specifically expressed that Troy was just not a good movie. So I guess shout out to Brad Pitt for recognizing that like this was not a good performance on his part. He did also say say some stuff about like, Basically, there were a lot of parts around this time where they could basically just plug in one of any, like, three, like, white men who were, like, leading men at the time, and you would end up with the same result. And this was one of those. Yeah, that was one of those. Yeah. Um, so props to Brad Pitt for recognizing that this just was not, was not very good. Yeah. And they did manage to find somebody who looked like younger Twinkie or Brad Pitt to play Patroclus. They did. Like, they actually do kind of resemble each other, which, so the fake out with the armor works pretty well. Yeah, it does. Which Um, is good. Good for them. But everything else about Patroclus is bad. Yes, it sure is. Anyway, the casting in this movie is fine. Yeah. Oh, I mean, well, okay. I feel like we have to acknowledge, like, Helen. Yeah. She's... A generically good-looking white woman with blonde hair. Yes. my So my gripes with a lot of the Helens that they cast is that they're not particularly striking. Yeah, this, this is the thing. And, like, we talked about this in Fall of a yeah. City. She's extremely generically pretty. Yeah. And to me, generically pretty does not really blow my mind as, like, the most beautiful woman in the world. Yeah. I want to see a woman who looks nothing like any of the other women in the movie. Yeah, well, I think you need somebody like Megan Fox. Yeah. Somebody, because, like, Megan Fox is very striking. You look at her and you're like, that's Megan Fox, you or know? Even, or even somebody like, so this is going to be a bit of a exposure of my child's bisexual awakening, but somebody like Kira Knightley. Mm, yeah. Who oh, has a look? Well, to be fair, she is very easily confused with Natalie Portman. So, so well, and so this is the thing. And when I was looking up, <laughs> I was looking something up because, and I this is the other thing is like, okay, so Kira Knightley is one of Natalie Portman's doubles from The Phantom Menace. Yeah. And so was Rose Byrne. Oh. The girl who plays Briseis is yeah. another Kira Knightley lookalike. So basically what I'm saying is Rose Byrne would have been a better Helen than yeah. Diane Kruger. Yeah, no. <laughs> she was even more generic than the actress they found to play Helen in Troy Fall of a City. Who yeah. was a little bit more striking. Like still I don't think And at least looks like an adult woman. Yes. This and yeah, everybody is white. But this was a 2004 blockbuster, so are we surprised? No. No. No, we're not. The thing about the whiteness in this film that is striking is that I think it ties directly to the, like, (laughs) extreme Americanness of this movie. Uh, And it, you know, it really is, like, I would say the first sort of third of the movie that very, like, really strongly plays into that. Like, it's because that's the part where we get this canon divergence that is extremely significant for how the audience is reading it. Yeah, so there's a couple of things. One of the things is just like a one-off that I like made a note about because it's something that really drew my attention to how really like American as the ideology of mm-hmm. this film is, which is before they like ride into battle 
Hector says, I live by such and such a creed, whatever. He says something about that. And then he says, honor the gods, love your woman, and defend your country. And I was Uh. like... Oh, rah, rah, USA, <laughs> USA. Like, yep. he might as well have fucking... And- yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I think this was... Because I wrote a note. Oh, my God, this is just American propaganda. And I can't remember exactly what it was about, but I think it was about that. Yeah. And so, first of all, here's my little, like, Greek minute about this line. Because, of course, mm-hmm. my mind immediately spun off on it. Because I was like love your woman fuck you why wouldn't you just say love your wife but yeah in fairness not that i think they were uh, thinking about this it's pretty common for greek to use gune woman for wife yes and uh-huh. on air man for husband yes. so like if there were any sophistication or if they'd done any research in this film at all i maybe would have been like yeah like that kind of checks out as like a way to translate mm-hmm. the way that greek people talked about their spouses they would just use the man or woman Mm -hmm. but that's very obviously not what's happening Mm -hmm. here because there's no way they put that much thought into it it's just misogynistic so yep yep anyway Um, the other thing that is really significant is so they make this change in the beginning of the movie instead of like helen's capture drawing the greeks to war because of this comp because they had drawn lots for her hand and agreed to defend her as like a part of that promise yeah like all the greek kings Mm -hmm. swore an oath they would defend the rights of the man who became her husband and then they drew lots and menelaus won yeah instead of of that being the reason they go to war when she gets stolen they go to war because agamemnon is actually in control of all of the Greek kingdoms. Yeah. He has been systematically taking over all of the Greek kingdoms, which to me is like a very sort of American imperialist approach to this culture because the Greek cities and their rulers just did not function like this. No. There were sort of independent Greek city-states, basically I think up until Alexander. Yeah. Which is really late. That's like 300 something yeah so for all of classical athens back through to the bronze age these are independent territories which maybe one a bigger territory might take over a small territory but like greece is not a unified nation that is being controlled by like one supreme ruler i mean i will contest that slightly because there was a long period where athens was functionally in control of like basically every nation on the eastern side of the peninsula and also most of the small nations in the aegean like a lot of the cycladic islands were under the control of athens they were nominally independent but there was an athenian empire for quite a while however it didn't last that long but the stronger greek city states through the classical period athens sparta thebes Mm -hmm. were the big ones I'm trying to think if anybody else was a major player, but my, like, undergraduate Greek history knowledge is failing me. Uh, Those are, like, kind of the big three for... Corinth? Uh, yeah, Corinth a little bit, but I don't know that Corinth ever had command over, like, a whole alliance in the way that Sparta, Athens, and Thebes did, at least here and there, for different parts. And also, like, 
So those three vied for control over most of the Greek world. And also there were like smaller coalitions here and there. So certainly coalition building and empire building within like and among the mm-hmm. Greek city states was relatively common. It certainly happened. Yes. But these kinds of wars of conquest and like imperialist idea that we get from what supposedly Agamemnon's been doing in Troy, you are right that that did not happen. Yeah. Well, because there's, I think, and I think this is really important that while there might have been aspects of empire building going on, there wasn't a Greek empire. There was the Athenian empire, but that certainly did not compose every single sort of Greek city-state, I don't think. Yeah. At any point. So... I will say every time somebody said the word Greek in this film, (laughs) I kind of wanted to die. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's just really anachronistic. Yes, it's very... Yeah, and I mean, that's the thing is is that it, it is entirely this American understanding of the idea of, like, a nation that is being imposed upon this material. And it's extremely United States. So I'm gonna, like, quote bits from the opening crawl here. Oh, no. Oh, oh, I have so many feelings about the opening crawl. The opening crawl's very bad. (laughs) And it's really, it's bad in ways that are emblematic of, like, the thing we're talking about right now, Mm -hmm. the kind of ideology of the film. Which, so, Agamemnon has forced the kingdoms of Greece into a loose alliance. And then in the next thing, it's like, Menelaus is trying to make peace with Troy, and I quote, the most powerful rival to the emerging Greek nation. Yep. (laughs) No, there is no Greek nation. And then, and to like segue a little bit... The next thing we get is Achilles, considered the greatest warrior ever born, fights for the Greek army. So what we have set up basically right away is Achilles as almost a metaphor for the military. Like Achilles is the symbol of, if we're going to read this like quote unquote Greek nation as a metaphor for the US, Mm -hmm. then Achilles is the US military. Yeah. He is the powerful weapon that must be, like, disciplined and controlled and kept and, like, made a tool of the leader of the nation in order to inflict violence and ultimately conquest on other nations. If he's out of control, they have nothing. This is a revision of things in the Iliad including the fact that Achilles is, in fact, the leader of his own independent nation. I mean, yeah. technically, he's not king. His father is still alive, so yeah. his father is king. But he is functionally king, particularly when they go to Troy. He's the commander of his own troops. Yes. I mean, troops. is uh, Soldiers, I'll say. And he's not beholden to Agamemnon's command like a soldier to a commander in the way that this film portrays their relationship. Because this film portrays their relationship as Achilles doesn't really behave himself because he kind of doesn't want to. Not that Achilles actually has every right to make his own decision about what he wants to do in relation to Agamemnon. He's characterized as insubordinate rather than proud peer like a peer without a lot of humility yes and those are really different things yeah it's all just really dodgy and i think it's fair to say that the americanness and the like amer the extremely american and like u.s post 9-11 brand of imperialism Mm. 
really shows in this movie. The way that it deals with, like, the concept of war and conquest that are being portrayed. There's really no criticism of war. Mm -hmm. The Iliad is a poem about how war is bad. It sure is. And whoever the fuck wrote this script, Mr. Benioff, did not understand that. Yes. Well, a big shocker coming from David Benioff. Yeah, for those who don't know, David Benioff is one of the writers who was responsible for Game of Thrones. (laughs) And if you know that, it tells you basically everything you need to know about what's wrong with the writing in this movie. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because... I mean, I've never watched Game of Thrones, but my understanding is that the problems are similar. Yes, this movie, you can really see the type of story that David Benioff wants to tell. And, you know, I don't really like the stories that he is trying to tell. I'm just gonna, just gonna put that out there. We need to talk about Briseis. We sure do. So, I guess I want to start off by not being, like, too negative, in that I... Rose Byrne does a fantastic job as Briseis, and Briseis is a character in this movie. Yeah, she she's had- probably one of the strongest characterized characters in the, this movie, partly because, I think partly just because of her acting abilities. Yeah, she actually has, like, a kind of an arc, and she seems to have her own, like, personality and ideas about things. I really have no problems with that. Like, yes. her as a character. yes. The problem is where they're like, we need this romantic plot to happen. So they do some stuff that doesn't make sense for the character that they've set up. You know, they might have made this Achilles and Briseis thing happen a little bit better if they had sort of let it happen at the end of the movie as opposed to like halfway through the movie. And that there's this immediate and just completely ridiculous switch where where they go from like she's trying to kill him to them fucking. Which... I mean... They do have interactions before that. Yes, but all of those interactions are very... Briseis is pretty well mad at him in all of those interactions. Yes. I mean, yeah. I I don't hate the way they... I don't... I actually don't hate oh, the way that they no, dealt with... No, I hate that. I hate it so much. And I really <sighs> hated it the first time I watched this movie because... Like, they go from this experience, this moment where Briseis is, like, willing to kill him. She's obviously... I mean, she's threatening to kill him, but we don't know if she was going to go through with no, it. No, but she's she is not in sexy time mode. She's She is not thinking about fucking. Fair enough. Right? Like, this just doesn't, like... To me, the reason that that whole situation made me more okay with it is that it shows that she's not completely powerless in the situation, which is the number one thing that squicks me super hard in depictions of the Briseis and Achilles relationship, where it's not problematized that she is incredibly, like, in his power, but we do get this moment where it's like, no, she could just kill him if she wanted to, but she kind of decides not to and so i was like okay yeah that particular scene really to me is emblematic of the friggin misogyny oh yeah david benioff cannot stop writing because he thinks this is a thing that would make sense for a woman to do oh yeah i mean it makes no sense whatsoever (laughs) 
completely <laughs> illogical. Like, how is this a sexy moment at all for the woman? Like, this does not make sense for Briseis to do, but it sure makes sense as a fantasy that a man wants to happen, right? Yeah. Like, like, ooh, sexy woman trying to kill me, and then we fuck. It's like... <sighs> Ugh. And this was actually the moment where I was like, who wrote this? A man wrote this. And then it was fucking David Benioff. And I like died. I was yeah. like, oh, my God. Yeah. Generally <laughs> speaking, I think that when you're watching something and you part of the romantic subplot is I really want to have sex with this person that I am going that I also want to do violence to. It was written by a straight white man. Yes. Because that is a like a dichotomy that I think can only exist in the mind of a particular kind of, like, straight white man TM who is like, yeah, I want to have sex with women, and also I am perfectly okay with slapping them around. Yes. It's like, oh, if women are so, like, strong and independent, that means I can punch a woman anytime I want. Like, sir, no, that's not how it works. That, like, pairing of desire and violence is not something that exists for most women I think yeah and I mean again like it's not like intimate partner violence is restricted to men but it's the romanticization of it I think that is yes our culture really romanticizes (sighs) this I this idea and yeah I think it is something that is just more common in men to have this like very little boundary between violence and sexuality yeah and i think that it's not that it's impossible to associate some amount of violence and sexuality in like a healthy way god knows there's plenty of people out there in kink communities who Mm -hmm. like do that every day and are fine and are perfectly normal and well-adjusted humans but it comes down to consent. Yes. Well, the thing is, is like and a lot of BDSM stuff is specifically about trust. It's enjoyable because it's about exactly your trust with somebody. Whereas this is not presented that way. No. And not only is Briseis as a captive not capable of meaningfully consenting, and also that she really has been sort of Stockholm syndromed by Achilles in this film because he is literally like, she's incredibly battered and he doesn't actively harm her and in fact protects her from the violence of other men. But then also that violence in their relationship begets violence that like the only we we know watching the film that the only way this is gonna end is with Achilles dying also. That like it's fine for him to have this kind of fraught relationship with her because we know that they're not going to stay together at the end. Like, I don't think... I'm, like, pulling on a thread that I haven't really fully articulated, but I think there's something there in the idea that, like, it's fine to be a bit shitty as a dude if you are ultimately going to die tragically and your, like, woman is going to mourn you forever because she will have this ideal... Like, Mm. she comes away with this, like... There's this, like, idealized image of him, and it's like, oh, well, we can't, like, speak badly of him because he didn't do anything that bad before he died. It's like, well, if if he'd stayed alive and they'd stayed together, I can bet you money that this relationship would not have been healthy, and it wasn't healthy while it lasted. But it's fine because he dies. So it doesn't last. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like... 
I don't know. There's something in that, that like, justification of it that sits really wrong. Yeah. I think the thing is, is this relationship, the way it was done, was just not the right thing narratively for the movie. But they really could not, in 2004, touch, get anywhere near the idea of somebody possibly being homosexual with a 10-foot pole. I think that's really what this is about, and the sidelining of Patroclus. Because Achilles and Patroclus' relationship is so important and like just regardless of whether or not you think it's romantic it is very important to the Iliad and it's really a central part of the Iliad and like drives the narrative so strongly and replacing it with this uncomfortable um, do you disagree? I think replacing is the wrong word they emphasize differently but I think that you are somewhat biased by not being as like not being as familiar with the Iliad oh, and yeah, stuff about yeah, the Iliad. No, that's like completely fair. Achilles's relationship with Briseis actually is also very important. Yeah, and she is the pivot of a lot of the action mm. in the Iliad, and she is the pivot of the initial quarrel. She is the pivot of Achilles's decision to leave. Like. Patroclus is not the reason that he decides to leave. It's Briseis. Yeah. Because of her as an object and what she mm-hmm. means as a prize and a sort of, mm-hmm. you know, an emblem of his honor. But it's still her and his relationship with her that mm-hmm. means that he makes that decision. It's the, the, it's the decision to go back into combat that happens because yes. of Patroclus. And that does remain the same yes. in this film. However... Yeah. <laughs> However, they sideline Patroclus so much that that doesn't become particularly meaningful. No. I mean, this is the thing. Like, this is not to say by any means that I forgive them for what <laughs> they did to Patroclus in this film. They did such a bad job with Patroclus. They made him into this young, kind of helpless character. Mm-hmm. They really strongly emphasize... Like, how many times can you say the word cousin in one minute? Again, I am pretty sure that this is entirely due to homophobia. Oh, yeah. Like, this is... is, We cannot possibly have any suggestion that this could be any sort of relationship. So we can't make them friends. No. They have to be cousins. And I know there is... Like, there's some text... They are actually cousins. In... (laughs) In... Everyone's fucking related. <laughs> well, is, aren't they just cousins in one random text, or are they generally cousins? I mean, everyone's. There's only so. There's only a few sources, and things don't. But I, I think that their fathers are kind of distantly related. Okay. Admittedly, I actually don't know the source for this. Yeah. I just know that they are actually cousins. Yes, but their emphasis is always is like I mean, you know, in the Iliad is obviously on them as friends. And yeah, and also, and also, yeah, as companions. And in the idea of companion, you have somebody who is emotionally your equal, if that makes sense. Like, yeah, like so. Obviously, Achilles is like the superior warrior and the commander. But there's an idea that there's a relationship there that's like, it's not like Achilles is the the teacher, you know, which is what we get here. In fact, it's the opposite in the Iliad. So Mm. one of the things that really pisses me off about this, like, decision to make him the, like, baby cousin who is, like, being trained by Achilles is that, in fact, canonically, as far as Homer, Patroclus is older. Oh, really? Yeah. Interesting. And there's kind of a thing that, like, 
Patroclus is kind of Achilles' advisor and is, in fact, almost acting in the place of his father at times. There's kind of a line that he delivers at one point where he's talking about how, like, when we went away to war, your father Peleus, like, asked me to look after you Mm. in... In a similar, in a very similar grammatical construction to one that is used to talk about how when he goes away, Peleus asks Agamemnon to sort of take charge of Achilles Mm. in place of himself as his king and father. Yeah. So there's a paralleling there. Like, it's pretty clear that Patroclus is actually kind of supposed to be the older, wiser, and more measured character. That he is Achilles' advisor. He acts as his conscience. Mm. And in other sources, like, for example, in the symposium, in Plato's Symposium, where we Mm. get this really hilarious passage of somebody arguing about who topped... um, I love that passage so much, it really sends me. But there's this passage being like, some people say that Achilles was the Aristes, the lover, because he was the king and he was the better fighter. Though not by much. They were, yeah, they were yeah. certainly comparable on the battlefield. It really only is when it comes to Hector yeah. that Achilles edges Patroclus out. Anyway, but it's like, oh, well, Achilles must be the Aristes. But I would argue that since it's obvious in the texts that Patroclus is, you know, Achilles is more fair, Patroclus is older, he's described as being bearded, he must be the Aristes, <laughs> and Achilles the, the Aramanos, the, the beloved of the relationship. So there's, there's definitely a sense, even in the Greek imagination, that Patroclus is actually the older mm. character. He's more experienced, he's in some ways kind of dominant emotionally because he has that kind of measured character that Achilles doesn't. Achilles doesn't have the control over his, like, emotions. He sure doesn't. (laughs) No, exactly. And so the fact that they were like, well, we're just gonna, like, make Patroclus a wooby. (laughs) We're gonna woobify Patroclus so that Achilles can have angst without making it gay. It's like they basically turn him into, like, a baby brother or almost a son figure. Yeah, And it's like, this is shitty. Yeah. And I hate it. I think the having Briseis and Achilles' relationship take up so much space in this in this movie, and they're specifically their romantic relationship take oh, up yeah. so much space in this movie, is due to a lot of things. But I think that also can partly be attributed to homophobia. It's like just to just to like really reaffirm how straight Brad Pitt is. He's I, so incredibly straight. Like despite the fact that he appears more than once wearing like a cropped vest. Achilles's wardrobe in this film oh. is the most homosexual shit I have ever seen in my life. <laughs> These fucking like loose off the shoulder cropped linen okay, vests. Well, to be fair, bitch, all of the men like we also see Hector and Paris wearing like these loose oh, linen, some stuff. like but friggin'. like Achilles in particular, and his like dramatic black like sleeping like clothes, his like nightgown <laughs> thing that he's got on. God, what a queen! Anyways, I just the fucking crop top, Jesus! It sent me so much. I was like, we're gonna we're gonna have we're gonna say cousin like four times inside five minutes in order to straight wash the fuck out of the ne- the fact that the next shot we get is of Brad Pitt in the gayest article <laughs> of clothing I have ever seen in my life. Yeah, but 
that tension is really what causes so many problems for Achilles as a character in this movie is that the fact that this the emotional a lot of the emotional weight is on this romantic relationship and and not that this couldn't have been successful with Briseis and Achilles's relationship having a romantic romantic elements to it but that it is so straightforwardly played as romantic and that that is like really yeah, confusing that is really just confusing in the context of the rest of the film because the Greeks are portrayed as the bad guys. Yeah. Except for Achilles, who is a good guy, but he sort of kind of essentially Stockholm's Briseis into sleeping with him. Yeah, he's a good guy, but he does bad stuff. Yeah, but then there's not really, it's not really framed with this sort of moral ambiguity. Like, that's not the framing we really get. The audience isn't like, oh, geez, Achilles is a really bad guy when he's doing stuff like Stockholm syndroming Briseis into where he's kind of framed as like a hero. Yes, because this movie was written by a misogynist and we're supposed to believe that that's romantic. Yeah, I mean, yes, I know. But like narratively, it's a problem, okay? I mean, it's not narratively a problem because the narrative frames that as a good thing to do. Or, like, an acceptable yeah, thing to do. I mean, I just... Yes. It's no, that a is problem a for us as viewers because mm-hmm. we don't see that as acceptable behavior, but the narrative has no problem with it. So in terms of his characterization yeah, no, within the narrative, it's pretty consistent. Yeah. But then I think you run into this other narrative problem, which is Achilles in this movie needs to be morally ambiguous in certain ways because he's on the side of the Greeks and we've decided to frame the Trojans as the heroes. Well, yeah. So, and so his narrative arc gets muddled. Like, I feel like Achilles really needs to parallel Paris here. Yeah. Well, so the thing is, he's morally ambiguous because at the beginning of the movie, all he cares about is his own reputation. And so I'll come back to this in a second because mm-hmm. this is what's important. This is the central facet of his character and his driving motivation. And his, but so this desire for fame and for reputation and glory and and the immortality of his name drives him to continue to fight for Agamemnon, even though he thinks Agamemnon is a piece of shit and he hates him. And to do all of this stuff, including sacking the Temple of Apollo, etc. But he doesn't really care about killing the Trojans. So even though he fights for the Greeks, he is framed as, like, not a bad person because he spares Briseis. He doesn't kill Hector when he has Hector, like, basically cornered at the Temple of Apollo at the beginning. He is not framed as a bad person because he doesn't have any personal desire to kill the Trojans until we hit the turning point of Patroclus's death. Mm-hmm. And then he does something, I, I said this earlier, he does something bad, which is kill Hector. It's framed unambiguously by the film as the wrong thing to do yeah. because all the way along his like redemption hinges on his romance with Briseis and Briseis asks him not to do it and he does it anyways. Yeah. So when he does it anyways, then it becomes inevitable that he will die at the end of the film because that is the film's moral punishment for him deciding to, like, go to the dark side. Yeah. Which is to say fighting for the Greeks and killing the Trojans. Yes. Which is super weird framing the fact that he's not bad for killing people like he suddenly becomes bad when he has an emotional reason to kill people like oh he was just killing people just because before and we're totally fine with that but we morally. weren't we weren't totally fine with that morally well we were never totally fine with that morally the film never frames 
the invasion of Troy and all of the killing of the Trojans as like the okay thing to do because Agamemnon is always the one who's motivating that with his own dreams of conquest and Agamemnon is the bad guy. Yeah, okay. I fair enough. It's only ever acceptable for Achilles to want to go home. Yes. The film seems to set up like Agamemnon and the Greeks as bad for wanting to kill the Trojans who are just trying to like defend their country TM Mm -hmm. in that very like remember Hector is the one who delivers that line that's like the quintessential like US propaganda thing yeah but at the same time the film has also got no issue with war no it is perfectly it considers violence acceptable also but can we just can we just point out how fucking funny it is that they present the Trojans as just defending their country when they uh, stole something or someone from the Greeks. Except <laughs> they and- did a violence on another country and then they go wah wah when the that country comes over to fuck with them, which yeah. is... 9-11, baby. 9-11. But I mean, again, like, It's like Helen, there's no irony. They don't even know. Yeah, well, yeah, of course. But I mean, Helen has, again, the film has framed it as Helen has voluntarily gone. So, obviously, the Greeks should just let it go. Again, it's very U.S. military in well, a way. Yeah. In that it's like, oh, well, obviously we have conquered your country and installed democracy, which is better for you. Why are you making war on us? Why are you so upset that we did this thing to you? Yeah, no, they literally just repeated the, like, ideology of U.S. militarism without... No thought, no thoughts head empty. They just didn't even, it, yeah, no, it could not occur to them that this is absolutely hilarious the way that this is framed. Oh, 100%. The other thing, and so to come back, I said before, Achilles is like driving motivation in this film is his desire for reputation. And it's interesting because as far as I can tell off the top of my head, the film doesn't really know what to think about that. It's almost stage dressing that they borrowed from the Iliad. Yeah, because the thing is, is that isn't, I guess maybe he states out loud that that's his driving motivation, but it doesn't really, there's nothing really in the plot that sort of reinforces that. Like, you just don't get Other that. than that, other than that, at, when Agamemnon takes Briseis mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. when he's like after the initial storming of the beach, Agamemnon is like, fuck you, I'm the king, I'm your commander, which Mm -hmm. means that I'm gonna get all the fame, soldiers get forgotten. Mm -hmm. And that pisses Achilles off. And it's this, like... But you know what? That kind of feels like that pisses Achilles off because the film sort of feels like that needs to happen. Like, it doesn't feel... It's like, okay, well, this is how Achilles is supposed to feel, so we're gonna write it. Well, and the thing is, and it happens at the same time as the the theft the seizure of Briseis from yes. Achilles's custody that therefore there is this other emotional motivation that his girlfriend has been taken yes. that pisses him off it's not just the fame thing and like the fame thing is what causes him to go to Troy in the first place so there's mm-hmm. kind of a nod to this but it definitely feels a little bit like he's made this decision because he has to and not because he cares that much about it. Yeah, no, I think that's a, that's exactly what it is, is that the way that this is acted in the film is 
Achilles, he really hates Agamemnon. Yeah. And he, but he doesn't seem to like fighting that much. He's just kind of like, this is what I do, so I'm doing it. Like, yeah, that is like, the tone of voice in which all of the lines are delivered. Yeah. About this. It's not, you don't get a sense that he really actually deeply cares about his reputation. There's no. no sense really of Achilles caring about anything that much until like halfway through the film. He's yeah. just like, I'm just kind of here. Well, he cares about Patroclus and that's about it. Yeah. Like that's the only time we ever see him like really emote a lot of care about something. Otherwise, he's just like kind of there, which is really a shame because Achilles is nothing if not an emotional character. <laughs> yeah. Once again, we have this decision to turn Achilles into the stoic soldier who either follows orders or doesn't follow orders. And, like, nothing about Achilles' character is stoic, and nothing about him is to do with being insubordinate. Yeah. Like, his conflict with Agamemnon is not about being insubordinate. It's about the infringement of his rights. Yeah. Well, the thing (laughs) is, is here he doesn't even strike me as stoic soldier. He strikes me as a hired mercenary. Like, that's how this movie treats Achilles, is as a a hired mercenary. And that Achilles is doing this because it's his job. Not because he really cares about what his position as a warrior and as one of the best warriors means for him in society. Yeah. And also, I guess at the beginning of the film, you know, we do see him as a talented warrior, but he, you don't get a sense of him fighting somebody who is in any way close to his skill. So you don't really get the sense of him as a fighter. Like, he just immediately kills this guy. Like, nonchalantly. Okay, but I want to talk about this. Okay. I'm going to, like, share a little anecdote. When I was an undergrad, I took Greek epic with the wonderful, amazing Toph Marshall, who, when we started reading the Iliad, he was like, I am going to show you guys the opening scene of the 2004 film, (laughs) Troy. And we are only going to watch this one scene because it's good. And so we watched this scene where Achilles kills the... the, <laughs> Fuck. Where the, Achilles Thessalian. kills. Yes, thank you. Where Achilles kills the Thessalian champion. Mm-hmm. Because this scene fucks, actually. And here's why Achilles' primary epithet in the Iliad is fleet footed or mm. swift footed. And it's extremely rare that we get an actual decision of fight choreographers to make Achilles' fighting style really distinct and based on his speed and agility, which he displays so clearly in this scene. Oh, yes. And I think also throughout the film, he has these very specific moves that are, yeah, his his specific... Yeah, he has this one thing where he, like, sort of, like, runs and jumps in this very specific way that he only does. Yeah, he has an extremely specific fighting style that Mm -hmm. no one else is really capable of that is very agile and quick. It is specific to Achilles. It is accurate to this epithet. It's really interesting. It's a great decision. And Mm -hmm. this like ritual combat between two champions while while the armies stand by or while they are kind of fighting around them. We get later scenes, for example, the fight between Hector and Ajax, where the two of them are squaring off and other soldiers kind of 
are fighting around them and the two of them are having this intense duel. And then later, 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 Hector and Patroclus, where we actually see other soldiers kind of form this wall of shields around where they're dueling. It is a really interesting depiction of Homeric combat that we don't get at all in Troy Fall of a City, but that this movie handles shockingly well. Oh yeah, and I I think you know I think what I pin- will pinpoint that I don't like about the that opening scene is Achilles's attitude. Well, yeah, that, and so th- that's what's problematic. This more is the so thing is the like fighting. the characterization is bad. Yes, but like. So one of the things Toph told us was, like, he went to see this film in the theaters when Uh it came out in 04, and this first segment, he was, like, a little iffy about kind of the setup and stuff, but this combat got him so excited as a Homer scholar because it's so (laughs) interesting and, like, shows some reflection on what the combat looks like in Mm -hmm. Homer in a way that other things really don't do. And then he was crushed by the whole rest of the film. (laughs) But... He's not wrong that this combat depiction, and in fact the combat depiction in several other places in the film, is really interesting and well choreographed and, like, kind of reasonably well researched. Like, people actually fight with spears. Oh, yeah. You get the whole, like, the battle between Achilles and Hector really heavily features the spears and then the swords being pulled out when the spears, they've, like, used their spears. Yeah, and, like, they break their spears, and they fucking, they're doing all kinds of shit, and, like, the shields are really well dealt with. Even the archery stuff, unfortunately, there's just too much combat in this film. Like, I got bored. So, here's my, I mean, I'm in sort of two minds about this, because I really like the combat in this film because the combat is Homeric. Yes. Like, the combat is Homeric. There are these big battle scenes. The battle scenes are very chaotic, but it's really hard. And in Homer, there's a lot of those battle scenes. Totally. That is a lot of the material. However, it is hard to make that much chaotic battle interesting. Yeah, this is the thing. That's a challenge. So that's... And, like, I'm not that enamored of, like, action sequences in films, Mm -hmm. really. Like, the reason that, for example, so to cite The Lord of the Rings, which was also around this time and has some similar, like, epic battle scenes. Well... Well, this this film, you know what, what I will say about this film as a compliment, sure does a heck of a lot better with battle scenes and some of the stuff that uh, Peter Jackson decided to include in the extended editions, but... I mean, <laughs> yes. However, the thing about The Lord of the Rings is that it's like, when the combat scenes happen, they are big and messy and dramatic, and there's just a lot of fucking stuff going on, and there's people falling all over the place, yeah. and the scenes tend to be kind of dark, or sort of sepia and it's hard to tell what's going on like mm-hmm. but they are infrequent there's like one major battle scene kind mm-hmm. of per yes. film yes. approximately which as far as keeping my attention and having combat feel momentous works in this movie combat begins to feel boring really quickly and like that is the one thing that is relatively accurate to the Iliad like combat is humdrum to some degree by yes. that point. Like, regular combat. Yeah. Which, because I, they've been at war for ten years. Yeah, and, well, but I think which does serve, like, the Iliad as a text, because, yeah. like... It doesn't serve this movie, though. N- no, it doesn't serve this movie. But, like, in the Iliad as a text, like, if you do war every day, war's gonna be boring. I just wanted the battle scenes to be shorter. Like, I think you could have cut 
everything to do with Ajax from this movie. Oh, absolutely. You would have cut a big chunk of the large pitched battle mm-hmm. scene where Hector and Ajax are fighting, and you also would have cut a bunch from the initial scene where they're fighting on the beach, yeah. and Achilles is, like, sacking the temple, and you wouldn't have lost anything from the narrative, and it just would have been less combat, and that would have been fine. Yeah, absolutely. Another thing that just really annoys me for some reason just to sort of do a tangent off of Ajax yeah what is this obsession in these in these like historical or or like mythological epics with with having these like giant like monstrous guys I it's so weird I mean Ajax is supposed to be big Yes, That's, but, like, his entire character is big, strong. But, like, these these characters are framed in such a way that they're not human anymore. Yeah. Like, they're oh, that's always how this it's sort true. of character is framed. Whereas Achilles gets to be a human being, which I just don't like that framing. I don't think it's it says anything particularly interesting about, like, war or combat to, like, have these, like, giant monstrous characters. And there is also, I feel like... Like, these characters are often portrayed as, like, deeply unintelligent. Yeah. Or, to some extent, like, intellectually disabled. Well, and, and Ajax is notable. We, If you've listened to the Mountain Goats episode, you will know that Greater Ajax is notable because he does, in fact, go insane later. Oh, yeah. Like, he loses his senses and does a bunch of mindless violence later on and ends up killing himself out of shame over that violence that he did while he was out of his mind and not, like, aware of what he was doing. And it's, yeah, it's really ableist. It really others that kind of body. Yes. Yeah, I think that's what my big problem with it, is that it is very othering for bodies that look like that. Like, you're... It's it's this actually really interesting thing for the male body. It's because men are supposed to be, you know, strong and muscular and capable in battle. But if you take that to the extreme, all of a sudden you are a monster. Yeah. Which is really interesting. I the, don't know quite what to think of that. The giant character um, who is large, lumbering, slow, and usually slow in mind. Yes. Whereas the agile fighter, like Achilles, mm-hmm. is also tactical, intelligent, skilled. Yes. Rather than just strong. Yes. And I wonder, I'm sure there, this character has some sort of root in media that would be really interesting to figure out. Um, but yeah. yeah, I just don't know where that, that sort of I mean, trope comes from. It might, this is total speculation, mm-hmm. but it may honestly even go back to like David and Goliath. Yeah, that could, yeah. The, that's, the, that's the huge explanation. villainous kind of slow-witted character as mm-hmm. opposed to the small, agile, quick-witted character. Yeah. Who is the hero. Yes. I think that that's maybe where we start to get some of this stuff. But even with characters like Ajax, who are friendly and forthcoming, but not that smart, and who ultimately end up doing a bunch of thoughtless violence and are shamed for their violence, their physical violence, and have no recourse because they don't have the wits to justify it in the Mm. way that a character like, for example, Odysseus, who like... In the Iliad, don't at me people who think that this book was inserted later by some other author, but there's a book of the Iliad where Odysseus, like, sneaks across the battlefield in the middle Mm -hmm. of the night with, I think, with Diomedes and, like, murders a bunch of Trojans in their sleep. 
and then sneaks back to the Greek side and is like, cool, we like struck a blow. But that's like an incredibly underhanded and really unacceptable thing to do by the standards of like what of like wartime ethics. Yeah. Even at the time. But he's smart, so it's fine. Yeah. It's really, yeah, no, it's not good. One thing I do want to just sort of talk about a little bit, you know, sort of related to the aesthetics of the combat is also just, like, the set design. Yeah. Which, so, the thing is, is I half love the set design and half just hate it. The scenery they chose is beautiful. This is still in the era of historical epics where they're using a lot of practical effects, which look really good. They have a lot of, like, extras. They did actually make some sort of clear, if we're also going to talk about costuming design, some at least clear designs that in the language of the movie help communicate stuff really clearly, like the shape of the shields delineating like what side the soldier is on. Yeah. Like that I think is a really smart decision. Um, and you know, none of it's accurate by any no. means. But honestly, you know, I kind of feel like, you know what? And we were hurt on Troy Fall of City, but, like, this is not based on a historical event. So I'm kind of more willing I mean, to be a little bit more lenient on this. The thing is, all of those fucking weird loose linen, like, vest things oh, yeah. that all the... Fuck, I hate those. Yeah, those are They're stupid. They're really stupid looking, and, like... I really, like, I hate a lot of the look of the armor. Not only is it super inaccurate, but most of it's just gaudy and shitty looking. Like, this is all pity gripe stuff. I hated the costume design in this film almost as much as I hated in Troy Fall of a City. It's just that this film happens to have fewer standout, specific, heinous outfits. Yes, yes. That's the thing, is that it's not... Which honestly comes down to the fact that there are fewer women in this film to be costumed badly, because women's (laughs) costuming... Women's costuming always stands out because it's fancy. Uh Uh-huh. And, like, Western misogynist filmmaking wants to draw attention to women's bodies, so we get these shots of what women are wearing... And every shot of anything a woman wears in this film is extremely fucking bad. There's just way fewer of them. Yeah, well, the thing is, is what these women are wearing in the film, they're sort of more sort of generically meh. Vaguely Greek-looking kind of bad, but, like... Yeah, but, like, it's no not... No fucking like, feather necklaces. There, there's no rope dress. Like, yeah. You know, or, like, bath mat on Helen's head. So I'm so sorry to our listeners who got four full fucking episodes of us bitching about this when we did Fall of a City and are now going to get another like five minutes of it in this episode. Yeah, but you know what the the thing is, what I did, okay, what I did like about the costuming here in comparison to Troy Fall of a City is that the Greeks and the Trojans, their armor is different. Honestly, I don't think that I registered it oh. enough beyond generic armor. So to me, they did actually... They like, didn't look that distinct to me. Okay, well, they looked more distinct to me than they did in Troy Fall of a City. Fair enough. See, to me, that's almost worse because there's really no reason that they would be armored all that differently. No, Like, in the time. Well, no. I mean, if we're no. talking about, like history then yeah but if we're talking about the iliad where the trojans are basically just also another greek civilization then they're wearing the same shit fair enough (laughs) and they're described as having very similar armaments yes however i think when you're dealing with a visual medium it's useful yes it is and also when you're trying to communicate in a visual medium that like the trojans are a different people 
Which they are. I mean, yeah, I know they're like kind of like Greek lights in the Iliad, but they are a different people, which is, you know, that's part of the thing is they are fighting against each other. Well, yeah. And so, you know, having some differences in costuming is, is useful. I do appreciate they did not try to make Briseis look super sexy. No, I'll she's give just them she just looks for battered for yeah, most of them. Yeah, now. she's just kind of wearing a like a sack dress and looks a bit beat up. So at least they didn't try to make her like a fucking Leia bikini. They yeah. didn't go that route, thank God. Yeah, that's the only saving grace of how they treat poor Briseis. Truly, but yeah, in terms of like the set design, like the wall, the walls of Troy look great. Yeah. They look great, and they're huge. They're actually big. They're huge. Also, I don't know if you were going to say anything about this. Like, I'm sure it's wildly inaccurate, but the, like, dope tent thing that they erect on Agamemnon's ship that is his, like, command tent. (laughs) Look, I'm sure that it is wildly inaccurate, but it looked cool. It did look cool. It was monumental. Yes. I will also say the ships look really cool. Yeah, the ships look good. I don't actually know much about how they talk about ships in the Iliad if they're describing them as sort of something like a Greek trireme. For those who don't know, the Greek trireme is like the ships that you see with the eyes on them that are the very sort of straight, they have the prow that sticks out really far from the rest of the boat. Like if you imagine an ancient warship and the way ancient warships get depicted in media, they're always shown as triremes. Pretty much, Um, And But that's like a very like specific type of ship that like shows up, I believe probably, like, probably shows up in the classical Greek era. So I would be surprised if we get it much earlier. So I'm not an expert on, like, ancient Greek naval architecture. And I'm just going to cite Wikipedia. I'm sorry. I, like, I really Mm -hmm. don't know much about this. According to Wikipedia, we have depictions of biremes, so ships with two banks of oars, as far back as the 8th century BCE. Oh, okay. And the trireme seems to have popped up in kind of the 7th century. So, although it's somewhat later, like, it's a little late as far as when the Iliad is supposed to have happened, i.e. in kind of the yeah 11th or 10th century BCE. However... It's not significantly too early for these ships when the Iliad was written, probably. No, no. And so actually having them be this, like roughly this kind of ship is actually not too bad. Yeah. And I mean, these look specifically like kind of a classical trireme, which I don't think would have shown up. But I'm not going to take too much issue with that. Um, And also in the Iliad, we do get this mixture of Bronze Age and Iron Age Stuff. Stuff. Yeah. Like physical items that we find in like specific descriptions of items that are like specifically present in the Bronze Age and then different items that are specifically present in the Iron Age. So totally reasonable. And I Um, mean, it does seem like so there's this relief of a Phoenician warship on the Wikipedia page from Nineveh, which is definitely a relief I've seen before. I took a Mediterranean maritime archaeology class and this relief does have sort of like the basic characteristics of a trireme. So it's got the like bank of rowers that is really low to like close to the ocean and then a very like pointy prow. And so while this re- relief is not of Greeks, this was definitely a type of ship that was exist that like existed in the Mediterranean in the like Iron Age period. Yeah. 
Honestly, the only thing that they do with the ships that's really egregious is the, the this shot that we get of all of them like out in the middle of the open ocean. Because as we have discussed before, people did not sail across the open ocean. They sure did. Although, to be fair, you probably can get across to Troy by island hopping. Yeah. I mean, whatever. It's just like we get this big wide shot yeah. of like mm-hmm. the thousand ships or whatever that's yeah. like clearly like they're out in the middle of the ocean and i was like this is not really this seems a little weird i don't know if you would warships are also like really light and fast yeah not a great thing to have if you get caught in a storm no like that's not super great for your chances of survival no they're actually ships as we know from the odyssey (laughs) yeah (laughs) anyway yeah so in terms of stuff that i deeply hated about the set design most of it can just be the fucking random temple to Apollo that's on the beach. Oh, shit. What? What is that? Why is it on the beach? It's not near anything. It's literally on the beach because they needed to be on the beach for them to capture Briseis. Yeah. That's the... It doesn't make any logical sense. And also, it's got these very clearly Egyptian elements on it. Oh, yeah. These, like, noticeably, like... Here's I'm, the thing. I, I'm okay with a certain amount of... We're gonna put a- random ancient, sort of ancient looking stuff in in movies. That, like the like, random Kurai. That oh, the Kurai is so funny. <laughs> the Kurai because it's so large too. It's so it's big. It's so big. Okay, so um, there's these specific type of archaic Greek statuary that happens in sort of the later later archaic period. So definitely post Homer, yeah. unless you're a person who has bad opinions about when the Iliad sort of developed in Which the text. These, um, these, this film doesn't because at the beginning it says very clearly that this tank took oh, place 3,200 years even, don't ago. Don't even get me. We gotta talk about that later. <laughs> um, um, but so these Kuroi are these, they're these statues of Greek boys that are in this very specific style that's, it happens in this very sort of specific like 200 year period. But, and they're never that large and it's just such a weird, funny thing for yeah. them to have. But Again, like, the fact that they show, like, these things that are very specifically Egyptian. Ancient Egyptian stuff and, like, symbolism and, like, artistic styles, they're, it's one of the most sort of distinct and, like, recognizable to a general audience artistic style. So to put into a movie that has nothing to do with ancient Egypt just irks me so deeply because people actually sort of kind of know what ancient Egyptian shit looks like. And a lay person might go, hmm, that's kind of weird. You know, I think that you are overestimating the knowledge of a layperson here, Allison, because I am not a layperson and did not clock that temple as particularly Egyptian. Because I don't know anything about Egypt. Oh, okay. Well, I know what it, a. I'll tell you just, this. I know what a Greek temple looks like, and yeah. I know I knew that it didn't look like a Greek I, temple, but I didn't clock it as Egyptian. So no, it's like the the temple design. I mean, it's kind of it's it's kind of a made up temple design. Well, but yeah, it's more it's more the imagery. Like there's these yeah. very the statuary is very specifically Egyptian, and then as well, there's this like bird relief on the front wow. of the temple. This like a literally just a hieroglyph, and I'm like. Are you fucking kidding me? Maybe it's just because I really was not 
looking at this film that much. Like, I think that as you've been talking about this, you're pointing out all of these, like, visual details that you clocked that I simply did not register. Yes. Well, but I am a vis- I'm a very yeah. visual person, as I'm... is established by the fact that I'm an archaeologist and you are not an archaeologist, right? Yes. And I mean, as far as that, so I guess it's fair to say as far as that stuff goes, there's just some stuff that I, like, didn't really notice about this yeah. film, but I definitely clocked that in general they just mishmashed whatever vaguely ancient shit they could find in together and didn't really care about accuracy and possibly did no research yes and you know again it's not so much that i care deeply about accuracy with something like this it's just that i don't want something that's so obviously does not belong yeah which like the egyptian stuff so obviously does not belong if they want to borrow from late much later greek stuff or roman stuff like whatever i don't care that much because this is a literary text that is vaguely ancient to most people whatever but again like the egyptian stuff is just so obviously to me just like completely out of left field (laughs) to me i was like cool looks vaguely ancient mediterranean and unspecific, just like every other thing they've done. I had already stopped noticing the inaccuracies of the set dressing by that point, which is only like 45 minutes into the film, because I was already like, fucking whatever. They clearly aren't paying attention, so why should I? Yes. So how about we end this episode with the first thing that comes on screen, which is 3,200 years ago. I think this qualifies as a petty gripe. I think we're in petty gripes. No, okay. Let me explain to you why this is not a petty gripe. Okay. Um, Because this paints the Trojan War as a historical text, which people are so confused about. You know what, Allison? That's extremely fair. And I can't believe, honestly, I spent so much time up on my The Trojan War is Not Historical soapbox when we did the Troy Fall of a City like episodes. I think I just burned it out. So now it is your turn to have that rage. And I respect it deeply. Yes. And I just, because I noticed this specifically as a, a like very specific and noticeable problem in people's understanding of the ancient world, and even of my understanding, like, before actually like taking any courses people yeah. don't really know whether or not the trojan war actually happened yeah and this movie is like yes the trojan war did happen 3200 years ago yeah is- see my my like homerist brain has already kind of moved past that as mm. being the question because to me it's like i spent so much time talking about homer that like I've moved on more to, like, was Homer historical? And I spend way more time thinking about that because obviously the Trojan War was not historical. (laughs) To be clear, listeners, the Trojan War was not historical. Did not happen. Yes. And so instead, the thing that I got up in arms about when I saw 3,200 years ago was like, wow, that's a real confident identification of when the Trojan War is, like, purported to have happened in the imagination of, like, Greek historians at the time people who like the greeks when they thought about their own history Mm -hmm. and when stuff happened what era did they place the trojan war in well it's pretty vague but like 3200 years is like a pretty sturdy like it was this period you know what i know how i am pretty confident i know how they got to this date is that they looked up the date when the iliad was written but that's not even accurate because 3,200 years ago was 1,200. No, 3,200 years ago is 800. What the fuck are you talking about? Yes, no, it's it not. 2,000 and then there's another 1,200 years. 
Bitch. Wait, no, is my brain broken? Fuck yes. Me. What the fuck? Oh my god. No, wait. it's like no, it's oh, like no, 1200 no, right. oh, BCE. No, no, you're right. You're which right. is the approximate I, kind I of I just can't do math. It's when like Heinrich Schliemann thought the yes, Trojan War yes. happened. It sure is a certain identification of a historical event that does not actually exist. Yeah. See, that was that was where really just what I got. I was like, fucking whatever, you guys. You really sure went in on a specific date for this. Oh, yeah. No, it they, didn't. they sure did. I didn't even really get to, like, obviously, because my brain was like, well, obviously it didn't happen. But you're right. They kind of do present it oh, as yeah. if it's a story. They say 3,200 years ago, this happened. And then this is something that they completely made up for the film, which is Agamemnon friggin' taking over everything. So now oh, there's yeah. probably a whole bunch of people who think that Agamemnon conquered all the Greeks in 3,200 3, years ago. And that, um, and that there was a unified Greek nation, like, in antiquity. Oh, yeah. which, you know what? I'm sure the modern Greek nationalists love. I have two more quick things to say, which are actually both pretty positive. One of them is that, like, the Helen and Paris romance is really stupid bullshit in this, like, as always, but they both look about 19, so it's much more believable that they're doing stupid bullshit because they look like children, and I was like, wow, you're babies, of course you're doing dumb shit. Well, you know what I think is interesting about this movie is that this is kind of framed as stupid bullshit. Yeah, it right? is. Which I'm fine with, because that is actually something that makes sense, Yeah, that Paris is a dumbass. Yeah. Whereas Troy Follow the City tries to paint... Paris is the hero. Yeah, it doesn't when, really work. Which doesn't work. Whereas I mean, this I'm, f- I'm fine with because I don't know. It's, the text no, knows but it's no, stupid. This, it's very clear that Paris is also the hero in this. He fucking no. lives at the end of the movie and gets to run away and be the hero. He gets the girl. No, but he, he lives happily ever after. It's not. Priam is like, yes, Paris, bring your new wife into the city. It'll all be fine. I feel like he gets <sighs> a... So I feel like he gets an undeserved redemption arc, but I think it's still pretty evident that he's being kind of dumb. Well, yeah, I mean, it's true. At the tr- beginning of the movie. And also, like, it's also kind of fine because Menelaus is very clearly, like, the villain. Yes. So it's fine yeah. because he's the villain. And, you know, even if Paris <laughs> Though- did something stupid, like, there's still, it's still very clear why Helen is unhappy because, like, you get the imagery of this really old, unpleasant man and this really young, beautiful woman. And yes. so that sort of, like in your mind, like, makes a lot more sense as to why Helen's, like, I want to get the fuck out of here. And also, I'm 19, and though stupid. this is related, actually, I do have a petty gripe. <laughs> here is my petty gripe. At one point, Helen says to Paris, Sparta was never my home. My oh parents, my god. My parents sent me there when I was 16 to marry uh, Menelaus. <laughs> oh my god. To reiterate, for any listener who doesn't know, Helen's father was king of Sparta before Menelaus. Like, Tyndareus, Helen's, like, human father, was king of Sparta, and he surrendered his kingdom to his son-in-law. She has always lived in Sparta. Sparta is where she is from. (laughs) This line was complete made-up bullshit. Yep. It was it was a dumb line. And oh, I I had 
one other positive thing to say and then one more, one more pity gripe, which is, here's my positive thing. The scene where Priam goes to, like, beg for Hector's body back from Achilles continues to be my favorite scene in any adaptation of the Iliad. Yes. It's always good. I mean, in this case, it is because Peter O'Toole carries the scene. The line that he delivers about, I can't remember the exact phrasing from the film, but it's like, I have endured the worst thing that a mortal man can endure. I have kissed the hands of the man who killed my son is actually a quote from the Iliad. Oh. Yeah. It's a great line. Really fucks. Peter O'Toole did a great job. Achilles got to have an emotion in this scene as he (laughs) usually does. If Achilles is going to only get to have one emotion, it's usually in this scene. And he does. And Brad Pitt got to act for 30 seconds. And it was like, okay, I guess. He still mostly looked constipated, but at least he looked, like, sad about being constipated instead of just, like, emotionless about it. And it was a good scene. And then I had one more thing, which was just a gripe. And I meant to... I actually meant to bring this up when we were talking about Patroclus, but I think both of us were just too angry to really get very in-depth about Patroclus. So they invented this other character for this film. He's this, like, young, dark-haired guy who is kind of Achilles' lieutenant, his, like, right-hand man, lieutenant, whatever. I'm a bad Canadian, sorry. Who, his name gets mentioned at least once. Um, It's Eudorus. Achilles calls him that. Yeah. And this guy should have been Patroclus. Yeah, yeah, literally. (laughs) This guy should have been... Patroclus. That like, I had a moment where I was like, this is literally just Patroclus. Like, his, you know, his respected right-hand man who, like, is kind of his leader, the like, his advisor and the leader of his troops when he's not there. Like, this guy is Patroclus. Ah, uh, yes, but this guy can be Patroclus because Achilles cannot care about his right-hand man because that would be gay, and we simply cannot have that. Surely not. I'm surprisingly tolerant of a lot of the interpretive and, like, adaptational choices. Adaptational is not a word. But... It can be a word if you want it to be. (laughs) Those... But those choices that they made... Mm Mm-hmm. It's really clear that they made those choices in service of streamlining the narrative for their media. This is not a bad adaptation of the story that is told in the Iliad. No. And in fact, in terms of deciding who the good guys and the bad guys are, giving relevant characters a bit of an arc, having characters that, like, have a role to play, this isn't that bad of a movie. It's just that because the filmmakers are so rampantly homophobic and misogynist, they end up making a number of choices about ways to adapt certain material that make this movie a really frustrating experience to watch. And also it's insufferably American. (laughs) I could not agree more with that. That was very well put. Like, ultimately, this movie is... It is an effective adaptation of the Iliad. It's just that they are projecting early 2000s American ethics onto it so hard that it, its moral and ethical core becomes something completely different from what it is in the original. Mm -hmm. And like, 
as always, I don't necessarily think that like things have to be accurate to be good. It's just that I strongly disagree with the politics that they are projecting onto this media, which makes this an objectionable adaptation to me. Oh, absolutely. Because the thing is, is it's not like there's stuff about ancient Greek ethics that isn't horribly objectionable. But the Iliad, I feel like as a text, is fundamentally questioning the validity of the cultural values and the ethics. Whereas this movie is just like, our cultural values are great. I don't see anything wrong with them. There's no problem here. Everybody good gets away in the end. Everything is fine. And so, you know, if it did play on those specific American ethics and American cultural values, but questioned them, then that would actually be a really lovely use of the source material. But they didn't do that. Yeah. They just threw it war propaganda at us. This is the thing is like, this is, they've taken a story that is very much about questioning the value of warfare in and of itself and just written a war story. Yeah. Where the good guys escape. Yes. Which... I didn't realize we are going to come up with something smart to say today, but we did. So shout out to us. We came up with a smart conclusion. We're very smart, Allison. <laughs> I, that's not true. But if I have a brain cell and you have a brain cell, then by our powers combined, we can do good analysis. <laughs> This podcast is hosted and produced by Allison Marlin and Julia Peroni on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Squamish, Musqueam, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. You can listen and subscribe to this podcast on our website, classicallytrainedpod.podbean.com, and anywhere podcasts are found. If you'd like to reach us, we can be emailed at classicallytrainedpod at gmail.com, contacted via Twitter at classicallypod, or you can leave a review. Finally, some acknowledgments. We'd first like to thank Nicholas Judy and Dark Fantasy Studio, who produced our wonderful music. We would also like to thank the Society for Classical Studies for their help in supporting this podcast. Our August episode will be on the television series Supernatural. As always, be well, and do not, under any circumstances, do as the Romans did.